Welcome to the Discipleship Unplugged podcast. I'm your host, Darren Middleton. I'm the teaching elder at North Geelong Presbyterian. This is season one and episode 11. And today we're going to begin to explore reformed understanding of the doctrine of calling. So let's define our terms. Soteriology is the study of the doctrine of salvation. Now, the word comes from the Greek word sota, which actually means salvation. So Reformed people believe that God is sovereign in all things, indeed over all things, and that includes salvation. So theologians try to order this in a faithful and an understandable way. Uh, it's often called the ordo salutis, which again is uh, it's Latin, for the order of salvation. And so last episode, we looked at election and predestination. And what we want to do this episode is we want to look at the doctrine of calling because the God who elects and predestines is the same God who also calls. In Romans 8, 28, Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So what what do we know? That if you love God, if you consider yourself a Christian, then all things work together for good. That is, everything is ordered, your birth, your home, your family, your circumstances, even your trials, your delights, your life as it unfolds, not only does it have direction, but an outcome that the Apostle Paul describes as good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so you have this affirmation that the Father is working all things together for the soteriological good of those who are called. So those who are chosen and their salvation predestined in time and space, it is those same people who are also called. So what does it mean to be called by God? Well, Maybe an illustration will help. When my kids were younger, we used to go camping with friends, and there would literally be kids everywhere, ours, our friends, and, of course, just just random kids that they met and were playing with. And so there are all these children, of which only seven are mine. Now, the three girls my wife has already gathered, but the four boys are still running around loose, and it's, it's time for dinner. And when you have seven kids, if you have lots of children, you know this, you very rarely remember their names. So I just call out, boys, it's dinner time. I'm a slightly elevated voice, but you get the idea. Boys, it's dinner time. Now, in one sense, this is a, a general summons, given that there were heaps of boys playing nearby. They all heard me call out, boys, it's dinner time. So although... Almost all the boys heard my summons, yet only four responded. And the reason is I'm their father and they know my voice. Well, in some ways, that actually helps us to think about the call of the gospel because the gospel call is both a universal call 
that everybody hears and a specific call that the elect or the chosen hear. Uh, The universal call is external. The specific call of the gospel by the Holy Spirit is internal. The external call everybody hears, the internal call is only what some hear and respond to. Now, like my children, God's children, those whom he has set his love on, those whom he has chosen, those whom he has predestined in time and space, it is those whom he calls, and it is it is those people who will hear his voice. And so we need to distinguish between a universal call, which everybody hears, and the effectual call, which only the chosen hear. And you're not just distinguishing between the effectiveness between them, but also the agency. What I mean by that is that the universal call comes through human agents, whereas the effectual call comes through the agency of the Holy Spirit. The universal call, therefore, is an external call, whereas the effectual call is an internal call. So when we think about the the call of the gospel, we need to think about it as a double-natured call. The universal call is to all who hear, everyone who's present, and the effectual call is to those whom the Spirit causes to hear. The universal call commands all to respond to repentance and faith. The effectual call causes all to respond in repentance and faith. So the universal and or the outward call is mostly rejected, whereas the effectual or the inward call is always effective. And so if we think of these, as we've been thinking of previously, as we think of this thing as a, as a Imagine them as dominoes of salvation, where each logical step of salvation follows on from the next. So once the domino of election falls, then the domino of predestination also falls. And if that domino of predestination falls, then the domino of both the universal and effectual call must follow. And so when we think about effectual calling, it is, it, is, it is more like a summons than an invitation. It's like when my wife uh, gets caught speeding again, uh, she may well, if she does that enough, she may well be invited to attend the magistrate's court. Well, actually, she's not invited, is she? I mean, she doesn't get to mull it over. She doesn't get to say, look, thanks for the invite, but I'll probably be washing my hair today. No, what she gets is a summons to appear before the call because one way or another, she will appear. Well, so it is with the call of the gospel, the effectual call of the gospel. This is evident now we know this. Let's think it through. We'll think about some of the examples in the Bible. So you get the, the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Now, one obvious point of the parable is that so much of the seed, which is God's word, the gospel, is actually wasted. Well, that's the universal call for the gospel. You know, it falls in, in, in hard ground and thorny ground and ground, the soil that will be choked out by, by weeds of 
worry and anxiety. And, and so you have this universal call of the gospel, and it looks inherently wasteful because it doesn't bear fruit, or at least if it is, it's only very temporary. But the point of the parable is that some of the seed will land on good soil, soil that the Holy Spirit has made receptive, and that's what we call the effectual call. And so there is this inevitability that the gospel will produce a good crop of repentance and faith. Now, that that same truth is evident in Matthew 22, in the parable of the wedding banquet. Uh, The king, who obviously stands for God, he's holding a banquet for his son, obviously standing for Jesus. It's his wedding banquet. Now, the king's servants, that's the apostles and prophets, the disciples, they go about inviting people to attend the wedding. However, most of the guests don't come, again, standing for the Jews. And the king is not well pleased, and so others are also invited from the street, and that's us, the Gentiles. And then you, we, we, we get to enjoy the king's company, but the, the point of the parable is crystal clear. Matthew 22, verse 14, Jesus says, For many are called, but few are chosen. That is, while many hear the universal call of the gospel, many hear the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners and was raised for their justification, while many hear the good news of Jesus the Christ, few respond, because few are chosen, predestined, and effectually called, because only those whom the Spirit effectually calls or summons are those whom he also regenerates and grants to those twin gifts of repentance and faith. And this is affirmed in Philippians 2.13 when Paul says, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And we already know what his good purpose is. We already know what that soteriological good is to conform us into the image and likeness of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he does that because he chose us in eternity past and he predestines us in, in, in time and space and therefore those dominoes fall and the domino that falls after that is the domino of effectual call, which is through regeneration, which we'll look at uh, in our next episode. That's why Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3 that God called us by his own glory and goodness. It's why Paul greets the believers in Romans 1 6, and he does so as those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. After all, as Jesus said in John 6 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. This effectual call, which often referred to as irresistible grace, Because though you were dead in your transgressions and sin, Ephesians 2, God effectually, irresistibly summons you or calls you to himself through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit who grants you eyes to see and ears to hear that you might be born again and enter into the kingdom of our God. Now, While this teaching is true, and it's encouraging because salvation is in God's sovereign, steady hand, not our own shaky hands, 
Well, well, it's encouraging because it, it reminds us the Lord being sovereign, that in the gospel, he will effectually call his people to himself. And that, and that, that, that means that all we need to do is to be faithful and clear in our universal call, the gospel. In, in preaching Christ and him crucified and allowing the Holy Spirit to effectually call all those whom he chooses to himself. While all this is encouraging and in so many ways, particularly for witness, but also for your own salvation, it, it is, it's also true. It can be hard to accept. It's a hard truth. And someone, as they hear this, is going to think to themselves, but but what about 1 Timothy 2.4 where it says that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? How does that sit with, with God choosing and predestining and then effectually or irresistibly calling people to himself and only those? Or, or their mind might go to something like Matthew 23 verse 34 you know, is he thinking about God desiring everyone to be saved? And and where, where Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Oh, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. And so while there are texts like John 6, and Ephesians 1 and 2 and Romans 8 to 9, 8 to 9, which speaks so clearly about election and predestination and, 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 and God's sovereignty in salvation. And, and we've got to deal with those texts. The, the point is we, we, we've, we've got these other texts that, that, that people stumble over that, that seemingly contradict those by saying that God desires that everyone is saved. And so how should we respond? Well, first, I would want to say I feel the weight of the argument. We should all feel the weight of the argument. That 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 because God's sovereignty raises all types of questions. But but let me start by saying that the traditional understanding of Matthew 23 is wrong. You see, Jesus is not speaking about the people of Jerusalem. He is speaking of the leaders of the people in Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jerusalem here is not the people, it's the leaders. It's the leaders that kill the prophets who are sent to them, not the people. Moreover, the whole context of Matthew 23 demands this interpretation. The whole chapter is Jesus' attack on the leaders, and the reason he attacks them is that instead of leading people to God, they're actually a stumbling block to people coming to God. Matthew 23, 34, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Their children are the Jewish people. How often would I have gathered your children, that is the Jews, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. What he's actually lamenting is the attitude of the Jewish leaders who reject Jesus as the Messiah and, and, and constantly seek to undermine his ministry to the people, indeed, to kill him. In essence, it's, it's the same thing he said earlier in Matthew 23, verse 13, 
But woe to you, scribes and Pharisee, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now, let me return now to 1 Timothy 2.4, where Paul writes that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, the most obvious question to ask is, what does he mean when he writes all people? Does he mean every single human being? Which is, I guess, what some people might say. And the, but the obvious answer to that is, 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 well, at least to me it's obvious. The answer is no. I mean, why would he desire every human being to be saved, yet not save them? All people in the text here should be understood as all kinds of people or all types of people. In fact, that phrase appears in its various forms 16 times in the New Testament and in every single situation, it is clear from the context it means all kinds of people. Not every person, but all kinds of people. Just look at how it's used in the very chapter that we're referring to. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, it begins with Paul instructing Timothy, saying, I urge the supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, if you were to pray for I don't know, all seven or eight billion people, that could, well, it could take some time. But I think we all understand what he says there, you to pray for all people. He's talking about all types of people, all, all kinds of people. And that's made obvious by the context. The very next verse, he says, pray for, what's the sort of people we should be praying for? For kings and all who are in high positions. That is, you pray for all types of people, even for the magistrate, even for the premier, even for your prime minister. That's why he, when he writes to Titus um, in Titus 3, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And again, the meaning is clearly all kinds of people, rulers and those in authority. And again, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But did Paul really think that salvation had come to every single person? Was every Jew saved? Was every Gentile saved? Was every sinner saved when Paul wrote that? Of course not. He's not claiming the gospel saved everybody in his day. He's claiming that the grace of the gospel came to all types of people during his day. And the context of chapter 2 makes that evident, which makes sense of Paul's commissioning as an apostle after his conversion when Ananias said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear the voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone or to all people of what you have seen and heard. Now, Paul didn't preach literally to everyone, did he? But he did preach to all kinds of people, Jews and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female. And so the Bible's teaching 
is clear once that first salvific domino falls. Once he sets his love on his people, then he will save them. For those whom he foreknew, he chose. And those whom he chose, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he effectually or irresistibly called. This is Discipleship Unplugged. Blessings and grace to you. And until next time, goodbye.